Hello, dedicated DJS listeners, this is Joey, the newest addition to drinks, jokes, and storytelling. You can now watch Joel, Mark, and Richie bust balls, tell jokes, and shoot the shit live every week on YouTube and Facebook. That's right, we're coming for all your senses. Sight, sound, and next will be smell. Follow our Facebook page, Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling, and subscribe to Soul Joel TV on YouTube to see us live every Wednesday. We'll see you there, and don't forget, the first one's on us. Do it again. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world. You're listening to Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling. A martini, shaken, not stirred. Don't try and church it up, son. You can't handle the truth. I am big. The picture that got small. Your first one's on us. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling. I'm your host, Mark Rigadon, and with me, as always, Richie Byrne. And your producer, Soul Joe. Oh, buddy. It's so good to see you guys' face. I'm so I'm so happy to be online with you guys. Uh, you know, there's no human contact going on. <laughs> that, I, I gotta be honest. I, I didn't I didn't expect it to happen underwater. Can I tell you why? Because you put up Soul Joe is live and it popped up on my phone. We're off to a fantastic start. We already saw what Richie's drinking. What do you got there, buddy? I saw a big brown glass with ice in it. I'm going Johnny Black again. It's a classic. The official drink of the 2020 quarantine. <laughs> I, uh, uh, Joel, do you, what do you... Uh, I, I messed up, man. My water glass dry. is empty. I'm dry. He's dry. He's a dry drunk. He has all the shitty qualities of a drunk, none of the fun ones. What about you, Marcus? <laughs> I am drinking a uh, vodka soda out of my Hi. Hard Rock Cafe Yankee Stadium glass because when really? you go to when you go any to any bar and the drink is sixteen dollars or more and it's a draft beer, glass comes with it. There you go. Is that their rule or yours? Mine. <laughs> <laughs> Life is good. Hey, listen. Sideways. Here's Spider Man Burn. (laughs) And listen. Well, he actually warned us that this was going to happen. Yeah. And also, someone tried to. Uh oh. All right. You got a problem. The other thing that we're going to do is uh, our producer, Joey St. John, the man behind the curtain. Shout out to Joey St. John. He's gonna be commenting. He's gonna be commenting on all the uh, on all the posts. So if you guys get comments, it's coming from Soul Joel's Comedy Club. But that's Joey St. John. Here he comes. He's back. And look, he got a little glowing thing like he's Iron Man in the middle of his chest. This is fantastic. What is that? (laughs) You're Iron Man. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, oh, it's the sun. There you go. I uh, whatever. I, I, it's there. It's there. But uh, I I jumped the gun with going with the drink. I think we should bring out our guest because I think we should uh, milk every minute we can get with them. 
Yes. Yeah, I think it's going to be great. We're going to get Brittany, great stories. You guys are old friends. I want you to intro them. Okay. This is a very special guest. Right, Mark? Very, very special. special. Very special. He's very special to me because the man was the warm-up for David Letterman throughout the whole CBS late night years. And he's amazing. And he's an incredible comic. And he's here with us today. Give it up for the one, the only, Eddie Brill. Eddie Brill! Hooray! Yay! And I got that little light. I got a little bit of a lightsaber going through my thing as well here. Eddie, you got like a halo. You're, yeah. you're a saint. You're halo, a saint brother. Halo. <laughs> Are you having to be vibing on any uh, beverage of choice? or are you? I didn't bring any. I, I'm finishing up uh, these uh, LaCroix coconut. Yeah, uh, coconut. Yeah, it's the coconuttiest. <laughs> hey, all right, before we start with Eddie, there's a couple of things we have to go over. I have to go over with Joey tomorrow before we move forward. <laughs> what is it? I need to know how to block my posts from people. Number one. And number two, it, we got to work on this thing because it's hard for me to understand you guys. But go ahead. Uh, uh, well, also, uh, I just went through Richie's AOL email, which, by the way, Richie still has an AOL uh, email. <laughs> he still I, has a couple of those DVDs left that he can yeah, put in. I have data. I have all data, everything. Betamax. <laughs> I've never seen anything like this. Richie had 29,000 unread emails. That's fine. That's wow. fine. But in his contact list, he only had six contacts. Six. Hmm. There's that I don't one like guy who wrote 28,000 emails. <laughs> How much yes. money did you lose? Can you go through and add up all the bookers that contacted him for a booking that he never replied to? Oh, it's got to be. Then, it's got to be millions. It's got to be millions. See if the gig's still open because daddy has a pretty open schedule. Yeah. <laughs> so Eddie Brill's in the house, everybody. Eddie, uh, where are you? Um, where are you? What should we call this? Calling in from? Yeah, Stay I'm in the East Village of Manhattan. You know, I I had gigs um, all month, the March, April, and May, half of May, um, all gone so far. All, all of it. I mean, every every last, and I had a whole bunch of it, and a lot of locals, and then I even had like the spa, cool spa gig. You know, where I would go away and uh, lay in the pool kind of stuff. Um, but anyway, you know, what are you going to do? So I just got to, I've been writing a lot since, you know, this has all gone down and that's always fun for me. So that's good. Yeah. Now, no, I, I mean, we have to make the best of it. We're in a, a weird predicament. So, you know, the business may be changing a little, but you're no stranger to that, right? You just adjust, jump back yeah. in. Yeah, that's the way to do it. I mean, you know, it's for me, I'm just trying to be positive about it instead. You know, you have a choice. You can make the choice. You know, of course, I'm like, oh, God, you know, you know, I, I, I want to run around and, you know, I, I need to be on stage without being on stage. I'll go nuts. You know, I don't care. I, I, I need it. So that's the part that sucks. So, but at least I'm being creative. And that's if I'm not creative, I'll explode, you know. Yeah. Yeah, we Mark. got uh, my children are here. <laughs> um, yeah, jeez. Uh, this is the beauty of doing it from home. Yeah. You know, I have a, hey, a did you guys a, see Michael? Did you, did you guys see Michael Rappaport today? 
I, no, I, what happened? He posted. He was yelling he, at the people to stay inside. Yeah, he was yelling at people to get your kids and bring them inside. Yeah, and he, Mark, he didn't mean you. Yeah. <laughs> this could be the craziest podcast we will ever do, Eddie. Right? Yeah, it's all right. I mean, this is unbelievable. It would be crazier if there were children that weren't ours in in there. You know what I mean? Like if the, if the children didn't belong to anybody, we would like start a little school in our house. You know, I don't I'm not making any money doing gigs, but I'm uh, I started up a little nursery school, and uh, <laughs> I have two that you can uh, sign in. Oh, great! All right. <laughs> Actually, I love the kids. I you know, I've, I've I've been teaching children in one form or another for over almost forty years. Yeah. So you wow. you teach you teach stand up. Well, well, you can't teach stand up, but you know the uh, the structure of stand up, though. Kind of, yeah. I've done. I started out mostly working with improv with kids. The combination of doing improv and also um, sort of personal, um, I don't know what you would call personal dynamics, or, or you know, kind of like in interpersonal communication, where a kid gets a strength and feels like they belong, and that's their you know, that no one's putting them down and, you know, they stand up for themselves, that kind of thing, combined with doing improv. And I think that's always been pretty fun and pretty cool. Now, do you, uh, do you find when you, when you do shows after a show, when people come up to you, do, do they always tell you a joke, Eddie? Do they um, want to tell you a joke? Yeah, that happens a lot. And it's always racist, always. Even, uh, even doing gigs in Manhattan, because you you know you you're on the circuit every night. You would think in a place like Manhattan that would tend to happen less. Yeah, you would think so. You know where it happens. <laughs> the mo you know where it happens the most is on airplanes. So, uh, you know, you tell someone that you know oh, conversation. You're a comedian, and so I stopped telling people I was a comedian because you're stuck with them, and it's racism, 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 and it's you know horrific, and they think it's hilarious and. You know, um, they mean well, but uh, it's it's not really as fun as it sounds. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that must be awkward too on a, on an airplane. You would think they wouldn't do that because you know their their voice can carry; they can't really look over their shoulder. But it's surprising, you know. Before the internet, we didn't realize how much hate and racism there is in the world, and I think the the internet has opened up. The window to us to show that there's a lot of hate out there. There's a lot of fear because you know we're a fear-based society. You know we've been, you know, religion, politics, and advertising is it's fear-based, and that's how those kind of things can be successful. Not in every case, but often. And you find out that a lot of people grow up in a sort of hatred world, and uh, so you know it's kind of interesting because most comedians are not. And you know, you you your friends are mostly these comedians who are deeper thinkers, smarter people. It doesn't mean that they're great at math or they're just really open-minded and and you know good thinkers. So it's a little shocking when you go out in the world and you realize there's a lot of hate out there. The good thing is, is hanging out with Richie is he's so pure because he hasn't figured out the internet at all yet. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, yeah. He's such I love a it. Such a pure, beautiful soul in hey, front of us. Well, hey, Mark, at, least, at least my kids are being quiet, Mark. That, that's true. You guys are still over swimming him. around in your balls. But he, he pointed out that he was going to his phone was going to drop, and even before I came out there, it dropped two or three times. So, 
If you you admit it, you're cool. (laughs) This is seriously, for some reason, this is coming in and out on me. So you guys are going to have to handle most of the interview. But uh, I want I want Eddie to talk about um, one of the best. One of the things I remember, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Eddie, was especially right now, given the the first show that went back on the air, comedy show, after 9-11 was Letterman. Yeah. And Letterman gave a great opening monologue about it. He was wonderful. He really was. And everyone talked about it the next day. But I wrote Eddie an email. Believe it or not, even back then, I knew how to do it. And I said, no one realizes that Eddie had to go out there first and talk to that crowd. wow. Yeah. 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 And we didn't really have a discussion about that. We just, you know, we, you know, the great thing about one of the great things about working at the Letterman show was pretty much everyone was the best at what they did. You know, the writers were from Harvard, the executive producers had worked, you know, for 30, 35 years. The cameraman, the number one cameraman, or it's actually camera two, it's called was uh, Dave Dorsett, who was the Walter Cronkite's cameraman. The lighting people were the best. You know, so you you worked with really incredible people who were great at what they did. So everyone was expected to take it to that level. And when you're working with um, that kind of, you know, high-end people, you bring your game up. Same thing you do a stand-up show. And if everyone on the show is really, you know, I remember I used to open for Robert Schimmel a lot. And I would say to him, do you want me to take it down a little bit before, because I'm high energy and he was low energy. He said, no, I want you to crush. I want you to make me work and take it to the next level. Well, that's what it was at Letterman. So when I went out there, I was just, could be as honest as I could. You know, I just went with how I felt as a human being and let people know that, you know, uh, laughter's the best medicine kind of corny truth. And then uh, and I just did as best as I could. And I, you know, I sort of, you know, I wasn't Letterman. I wasn't as savvy as he was. He came out and he, you know, one of the things that I've noticed in the world is, is there are very few broadcasters anymore. You know, the, the Jack Parrs, the Steve Allens, the, you know, David Letterman's, the Johnny Carson's, Dick Cavett's, that kind of thing. Um, nowadays it's more, you know, it's, they're, they're not broadcasters. Letterman was a broadcaster. He came out and, and did the job. He was, he was very, very honest. And, uh, I was very proud to work for that man. And on that day, especially. Right. I, I only got to go there a few times, but I, I loved how he kept it so cold. The studio was yeah. ice cold. It was because in comedy, you need to keep people fresh and you need to keep them sharp. And that was the reason why to keep them, mm-hmm. you know, and, and when I first worked there, I would like always be grabbing my nose. It's like, Oh my God, it's freezing in here, but I got used to it and it just, it worked better. Um, so, you know, you didn't really sweat. Letterman would even take his jacket off in every commercial break. It was just, it was cold in there. It was good. Like if you go to a comedy club and it's cold in there, the the audience is so much sharper and so much better. Really? So you, do you think cold. it's better to keep the audience cold? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 The, the heat is the worst thing you can do with comedy. It makes people sleepy. It makes them not pay attention. They're doing this. Where when you're cold, when you're, you're kind of like focusing on something to keep, you know, your right. energy in. Yeah, you go to a comedy club and they want to sell drinks. So they put salt in the popcorn and they turn the heat up. And, you know, you might sell more uh, soda, but you're you're putting the worst possible uh, atmosphere 
for a, for comedy. Yeah. <laughs> Richie, what are you doing? <laughs> Richie's the only one who's not who's very who's clean shaven. I've been letting it go since I've been uh you know, uh since I'm not going on stage, you know, it's kind of fun to be able to be a bum. Do, do you always keep it cleanly shaven? You know, I I I did when I I most of the time when I go on stage, I want to look sharp. I've always thought that was an important way to be. Something that appeared at times. I played I played a character for a while on the internet, which was a professor for with language, and I sort of did a. Um, there was a TV show called The Family Affair, and it was Sebastian Cabot was Mr. French. So yes, I said a like Mr. French and Jody Buffy. Hmm. Yeah, welcome. Hello. You know, so I grow a beard for that. But ma mainly I like having being clean shaven. Look at Letterman now. We Letterman had a you know shave every single day and he hated it. Um, you know, at one point it there was a strike for eight weeks back in two thousand and eight, and he grew the beard and had it shaved on television. But after the Letterman show was over, he just let it grow because he hated having to shave every day. He, yeah, he got a nice lumberjack beard. That yeah, thing is serious. Yeah. He loves it. You know, people make fun of it. The more they make fun of it, I think the more he loves it. I think it's great. Yeah, I, I, I like the non-traditional, non-traditional look. It's always why I had weird sideburns. I'll grow a mustache. I'll do whatever it takes to just not be so traditional. Yeah, but my father used to have these sideburns that were like very in the '60s that would like sort of come down and then go like that. So I grew them like that just because I wanted to sort of tribute to him. And Letterman would make fun of me all the time, is you know, like you know that I was Johnny 1968. Like, where's my Impala? You know, all this kind of stuff like that. And and so one day as a joke, I shaved them off, and he went, "No, you didn't have to shave them off." I go, "It's a joke." You know, we just uh, but, uh, <laughs> no, it's fun to to be able to play. But something that I wanted to bring up. Fun. Something I wanted to bring up with you, Eddie, is uh, this: this term gets thrown around it's, uh, quite a bit. But the hardest working man in show business, I think it's an actual true statement when it comes to you. Uh, yeah. You're you're doing warm up, and you were uh, out running on the clubs. You're still doing weeks out on the clubs, and not just around New York City. You're going overseas. You're traveling more than like a hardcore road comic. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're doing the crowd warm up during the week. And then I see you at every goddamn comedy festival. Yeah. Do you sleep? Very little. I love it. I mean, I love it. And, you know, oddly enough, to be a little serious, um, I've lost a lot of people in my life, you know, and very, and I, I've thought about this before and I've talked about it with different people. I've lost a lot of people, my one of my brothers, my sister, my stepfather, all in their 30s, you know, my mother, my father, such some of my best friends, a great girlfriend. And I think that I've lived, I've decided I'm really going to just live and do everything I dreamt, have dreamed and even things I never dreamed about. And I love it. I, I you know, like even today, before I was with you guys, I was working on another podcast idea with some people putting it together. And I wrote a story today about having to host this um, cancer benefit and I actually threw it on Facebook today. I just wrote a story today. I just can't stop. I, I, it's just, I have this want to get every, do everything I can possibly. I have, I was making a list of things I'm working on now. I'm working on 32 different things right now. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Jeez. 
I'm, I'm working on this. Yeah, <laughs> good. I'm glad. Richie yeah. almost knows how to send an email. It's ah. really exciting times here at the uh, Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling. Yeah. yeah. I tell you, I, I, I remember I did a gig in New Jersey and it was a cancer benefit. So I went on stage and I said, you know, I'm. Great here to be here for you know we're trying to raise money uh, for cancer and then I just in my in my brain I heard for cancer I went well not for cancer we're against cancer you know all those other and the audience laughed really hard and I said oh you know all those other uh, benefits for for cancer we're not those people because they're for cancer we're against cancer and the more I did it the more the audience was laughing and I'm going in my brain I'm thinking. Got to use this in the future. So I'm doing it every time I brought up a new person who was going to speak. You know, that guy, he's, he's against cancer. And it was fantastic. And then about six months later, I get a call from, you know, the benefit. I guess I'm Mr. Benefit. And uh, I go, you know, ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be here for cancer. And I go, well, not for cancer. And the audience looked at me like, what? Like, wow. I was, you know, and I thought this was money in the bank. I was going to do this every time. And the audience hated me. And I'm going, no, those other people are for cancer. We're against cancer. And they're like, you know, get him out of here. That you know, oh, wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. How, how dare the comedian. <laughs> yeah. Well, Eddie, we've been asking uh, all of our guests, uh, if, if you can. I mean, obviously, that wasn't a, a pleasant memory. But is there one gig that stands out that was the worst gig? And you probably have traveled pro all 50 states doing comedy. I have. I've done, I've done 40. Four now, forty-five. I just did Oklahoma for the first time. Okay, um, so, so there's what ones are you missing? Um, there's West Virginia, Arkansas, um, Montana, North Dakota, and Wyoming. Those are the ones I haven't done. But I've okay. done all states. I've done Bangladesh. I've done, uh, <laughs> you know, I've worked in uh, Amsterdam, and you know, I've, I've had, I've worked all over the world. It's pretty good. And Bangladesh, the yes. Wyoming, no. Yeah, I would love to do Wyoming and, and Montana. I think it would be beautiful. I did uh I did West Virginia. Yeah. Yeah, college. And this kid was heckling me and he was a real like, hey you suck, you know that hey, <laughs> hey you suck. Where you New Yorkers? And right. at one point I go, I go, you go to the school? He goes, Yeah, I go here and I go, What's your major? And he goes, Theater. Ah, fantastic. <laughs> Theater. And he was yeah. serious. Yeah, I know. I, it's and and they step in their own shit, and it's really great. But I, I remember there's a few gigs I've done that have just horrible. But the worst gig was a gig called the Charlie Horse, in just in uh, Southern Massachusetts, not far from Plymouth. And I actually went brought a date with me. There was a girl named Susie Allaire. I haven't, you know, it's weird. I would remember her name, and she was so beautiful. I wanted so much to get the nerve to ask her to come and she's she decided to come to this gig with me it was like a 35 minute ride out, out out of boston so we drive down to um the gig and it's a biker bar kind of thing called the charlie horse and we walk into the biker bar and it's like the scene at the end of uh, blazing saddles where guys are hitting each other over the head with pool cues and fighting and guys with chains and they're beating the shit out of each other and I don't see a stage. I'm going, where? I go to the guy, where is the stage? And he goes, you go through that door. So I went in that door, and there was only women. And that was very sad. And they were all beaten up. They were like the women who were just who were beaten up by the guys in the other room. 
who are waiting <laughs> to go home to get beaten up again. There was women. There was a woman with a, a you know, a black eye that was the first woman I saw. There was uh, there was a couple of women with um, slings, their arms in slings. There was one woman with a baby in a baby carriage, you know, like a stroller pushing the stroller. And my friend Susie was very demure and she was very nervous. So she sits sort of in the front and I go out there and these women are not paying attention to the show and I'm just talking and there's nothing and I'm and the only person who's really looking at me is the woman with the baby in the carriage and the beer in the other hand and uh, I said you know it's um, you know no one's really really into this and not paying attention except that one la the you lady and she goes fuck you and she throws the bottle at me and I duck it hits the wall smashes the glass in my hair drenched my whole back and uh it was just, it was the worst gig ever. And then the longest ride home, Susie never saw me. <laughs> I see the life of this guy. Next. <laughs> I was going to make a really dark joke and say, well, now we know why they were beaten up. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know. Well, it's I, good that you didn't, Mark. It's a very sad scenario. And uh, it was more sad than oh. hilarious. And, uh, well, not as sad as that. Uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It was great, great callback, Eddie. Great callback. Yeah. Just when you shit on me, Richie. Just this could, this is the worst show since we started doing this for me. I no. can't understand anybody. Things are falling. You're picking your teeth. Yeah. I'm picking my teeth. I did a gig in Clinton, Massachusetts, where the audience got in a fight and they were throwing beer bottles at each other across the room. Jesus. And just smashing bottles. And none came near me, but it was just... It it they you know it wasn't as much fun as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that. You know what's funny though is like when we associate like a bad gig, uh, a lot of times uh, I've noticed throughout the people's stories that it, that it, there's like a biker bar mentality. One of the best shows I've ever done was in Sturgis during the biker. Wow, round. yeah, and they were the greatest crowd. And so it's like, it just goes to show you don't judge them until you get up because we've heard so many bad stories about the biker scene. You know, most of the biker gigs I've done are great. You know, Milwaukee, one of the greatest cities in America, and one the Comedy Cafe was a great comedy club there. They're unfortunately not around anymore, but it was pretty much run by biker folks, and they were the greatest audiences ever. So yeah. I've never judged an audience ever before maybe early on until i learned my lesson you just you you respect the audience before you judge them and then you start adjusting from there uh but yeah, yeah. It, it's funny that you're say, wording it that way because i every time i've thought i'm gonna judge this oh. <laughs> something else happens it's like usually i go oh this is gonna be a great crowd and then all right Joe, stop taking me. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, I didn't, dude. I, I didn't realize it was me. I didn't realize it was me. I'm trying to get more listeners. Uh, <laughs> it's you. I've been, I've been telling you that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Eddie, this is every every day at six. You can watch the dysfunctional family. I like it. I like no, it very much. <laughs> 
Jinx jokes of storytelling. That's great. <laughs> oh, it's it's a great name for a book, Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling. <laughs> well, so yeah. what is, uh, what's your game plan with when everything starts getting back? Are you going to start trying to get back out on the road? Or are you yeah, I, I really to... want, you know, I want those gigs again. And, uh, you know, I, I help a lot of people with, you know, comedy things. There's a guy who's opening a club in Alameda who's a terrific, amazing guy. And I've helped him design the club. Put it together from uh, scratch. It was an we we tore the place apart and designed the room perfect for comedy. And I've, uh, for some reason, I've always had a good sense or rhythm of the room kind of thing. And this place is going to be amazing. And I'm going to open up his club. We were going to do it in the middle of May. We're going to do it April Fools this week, but that of course didn't happen because of you know builders yeah. and stuff. But we're going to do it in the middle of May. But now we'll have to wait and see. You know, just. You know, I want to go back to England and Ireland, which I love those places to do comedy. Also, I'm working. I have a podcast that's going pretty well. It's uh, I have three of them actually, three different. Plug ones. away, man. Plug away. And, well, the one that the 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 one that I have stopped doing. I've done eleven interviews. Is the break with Eddie Brill, and it's an audio podcast. And I, I you know, I interviewed Atel and Susie Essman and Jim Gaffigan, and you know, there's uh, there's uh, you know, he's gone. Um, <laughs> maybe, uh, <laughs> I mean, not just you know, on the podcast. I mean, I'm yeah. back. I'm back. You're back. <laughs> I cried. I cried a little when you were gone. I you can't you can't I, see the tears because they've dried up. But I was. Yeah. We were all Joel, Joel, you tag me and it comes up on my feed. Dude, dude, that I, I, I'm Eddie. I'm sorry. I, I did not do that on purpose. I was trying to listen to Eddie while sharing it. I didn't realize I was coughing havoc on your phone, uh, Richie. I've been telling you that for four days. A little havoc and every once in a while is pretty good, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Eddie, I wanted to um, – a lot of people don't realize that, like, we are empathic. Like, you do pick up on energy of the crowd. Like, have you ever um, – well, one, have you ever, like, guessed people's – not names per se, but, like, professions just from a vibe you got or, or done some sort of thing like that? And also, are, are you the kind of comic that likes to sit in the room and watch the openers because you're a headliner? Or, or do you not like to see anything? I um when it comes to doing stand up I like to get sit in the room and watch what happens because there might be an interaction that I can call back later on but I I do like to you know I do I do feel the rhythm of the room and yeah. uh, and that helps me you know when uh, you have to be able to you know I put sort of a virtual red velvet rope around the room and make sure I've learned you know a lot of lessons along the way I remember one time I was at Caroline's and you know, it's a sold out show, 300 people. And I thought it went really well. And some guy started walking toward the stage at the end. And I recognized him because he was uh, in a sitcom uh, called Arnie when I was a little kid. Uh, his name is Roger something. I can't remember. And he was also in MASH in the movie. He played, uh, you know, oh, I can't remember. He played the... Uh, that was Alan Alda, Eddie. No, I'm right. Kidding. Oh, yeah. That's right. Did I say that? I meant Alan Arkin. No, it was uh, Roger... <laughs> Roger somebody. But anyway, I was like, oh, my God, that incredible actor. And he said, you know what? You never looked my way once. And I, and he was kind of like, you know, it was like, fuck you. No, it was like it was kind of like <laughs> it was kind of like weird. And I wanted him to be really happy. And he was not. And I learned a lesson to really focus on the whole crowd and let everyone feel like they're part of what I'm doing. And uh, so I learned lessons along the way. And I've, you know, I've always had a there's a mathematical rhythm to comedy and to writing and to music and all that. 
but I've always had a nice sense of a you know of the room itself, the people in it, and know how to use that rhythm to like I can get people to shut up without going shut the fuck up. You know, if I have to do that, I'll go to it. But I yeah. can slow my words down and have space and stand in front of them. And then they hear themselves talking, they stop talking, and I can get them without bringing the tension in the room by using the, the, the rhythm. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I always kind of believe that there's like the technician and the character. And it's like you have to technically be sound and know your jokes and know the professional stuff. But then you have your character that not necessarily have to be like some zany character, mm. but it's the making it seem off the cuff. And if you can get the character to hide the technician, it seems like you're just some guy who wandered up and was amazing. It, it then, is pretty good. And that's the talent. And also at the same time to be open-minded and open enough to know that something is going to change. The rhythm's going to change. Every new breath is a new rhythm and every new, you know, br you breathe in, you change the whole mo molecules in the room. And, and you have to be open enough to know that, to be ready and to be excited that there might be something that you never planned to have happen. And that's how you ad lib. And, you know, I've be, I've, I watched, I learned from Paula Poundstone is the best ad libber I've ever seen in my life. And uh, I learned early on. And I guess in the eighties, I opened up for her a couple of times and just marveled at how good she was. And I would talk to the, you know, the, the great ad libbers like Caroline Ray is really great at it. And, uh, you know, and uh, so I, I've learned how to ad lib by <laughs> by uh, by just watching them let you know let it happen instead of trying to make it happen and uh, so that's the part like you said it was great what you said Mark about the you know you have the character and it it hides the the technician but at the same time you I want to be open enough to be able to to let it happen and no. you know there's no rules in comedy you know if there are if, like some people say you need these many jokes per minute and you know it's all bullshit like you wouldn't have you know lily tomlin if that was the case or you wouldn't have um andy kaufman if that was the case there are no if you're you whatever you do you know you're an artist you have an empty canvas and you paint that canvas and uh if you make if, if one person laughs that's all that really matters you know you might not like the comedian but somebody else does that means that person's a comedian and they're fun. That's the one of the, one of the big things that really gets on me is uh, people not allowing themselves. <laughs> you know, it's almost like you're doing it on purpose now. It's like <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I I'm only kidding. Our... What, one of our fans, Brian Flammer, goes, rumor has it when you tag Richie, his phone drops. So I think people are doing it on purpose now. Yeah, and it's not, right. it's not me. Yeah. Um, so, Mark, back to you. Yeah, so, um, shit, I forget what we were even talking yeah, about. Yeah, we weren't talking uh, about Eddie, anything. We were talking and, about how Eddie, I, I got a question from you uh, from, from a booker standpoint. Um, do you teach the comics now any kind of etiquette? Because, I, you know, uh, I now own a club and I've been booking shows. When you were booking Letterman, I, I mean, I, I've never booked television, so that was another level. I can only imagine the amount of people texting, Facebooking, emailing, and trying to get in front of you. People don't understand, but comics are animals. They'll 24 7, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 2 o'clock in the morning. I mean, Mark and I have talked about this. If, if, if we do this, we have to understand. It's part of the job. Yeah, but, and if you you know you know it's like that's part of the job. If, you know, if you can't handle it, then don't do it. You right. know, a lot of you know the 
for me, I'm a comic and I knew what it was like wanting to be on Letterman. So I made sure that I would be the booker that I would have wanted to have. You know, it doesn't, you know, I, I made many mistakes. Like I, what I did as the booker is that after the end of the audition, I would stay and talk to every comedian who auditioned to let them know why they would get the show or why they wouldn't get the show. And, you know, I thought that's what they wanted. That's what I wanted. I wanted to know why I didn't get the show. And some people who would come afterwards, they only wanted to hear you got the show. They didn't want to hear. And they'd be like, who the fuck are you to tell me how to write an act? And I would like, you know, but I'm not, I would never tell anyone how to write. And as a matter of fact, I've told many comedians, look, you're not right for Letterman, but you're one of the greatest comics I've ever seen. And you better change what you're doing. So you have to be ready. Like a lot of comedians will run a, a festival and or people will run a festival and they'll charge comedians to audition. And, you know, that goes, you don't make money off the back of comedians. You're the comedian should be paid not shouldn't have to but pay. I do have, a, I do have a, a thing because if you don't charge, people will just keep submitting. And if you just put a price tag on it, maybe if the money goes to something to the festival, you know, like the prize or the whatever, but I understand that's that's the the one drawback is that you'll get a million trillion. But I I believe if you're running a comedy festival, you should be able to, if you're good at it, you raise money through um you know publicity and, and uh, you know and if you can't r- sell tickets and raise money through sponsorship, you shouldn't run a, a comedy festival. You shouldn't break a comedian's back by having them submit. And if you know, I mean, all right, you could charge them to submit. If you want, and then and then give them the money back if they, you know they're legitimate or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. I just think that as a comedian, I wanted to be the book. I like. I started by booking a comedy club. I ran, ran the Paper Moon uh, in 1984 in the Village. The Paper Moon eventually became the Boston Comedy Club. That was. Okay. I, I started that room, and I got so wow. many people all the time as a comedian. I'm working with them, and they're all being sweet and lovely and wanting to you know get the club and you know what i understood it completely i and if i was going with a booker i'd be nice to them and want to get the club so you know i and there are people who are kind of jerks but very few most people are very sincere it's very hard but again you know back to the original question if you're booking a club you just got to be ready for that now when i was booking letterman there were thousands i mean thousands of but I looked at every I looked at every tape, and I would actually go on the road. Like, say I did uh, Denver comedy work, so I'd work Tuesday through Saturday, and then on Sunday I'd have them run ten comics for me, and then at the end of the night, you know. So you didn't have to come to New- to New York or L.A. to audition. Okay. I came to you. Wow. Uh, you know, so that worked out, and then I would go over the bookings, and again. Um, a lot of people hated it or hated me because I didn't book them, but that's their shit, not mine. I had a that was the hard part, you know. But, but that way you're able to take from comics all over the country and not just regional in New York or if they if you saw them at a club, you're able to see from a nationwide perspective. Yeah, and also, you know, when I got the job, there were probably 16 boxes of VHS tapes because I started at booking in 2001. Um, I, you know, go through all the tapes and I watched every one, which painstaking. 
I um, <laughs> only, only two comics got the show out of it. And it was Nick Griffin and Karen Rontowski. Um, wow. You know, so there's so many tapes were just not, you know, you'd have tapes of people like, you know, so I'm fucking walking down the fucking street and it's like you're auditioning for Letterman. I mean, I could see through a lot of jokes that you don't have to curse everyone, but some people were just, you know, some, you know, just, it was inappropriate for late night television. What, what's the um, most clever uh, thing that like wet way that someone got in front of you that kind of, cause you hear like uh, someone for an interview like would uh would send a sneaker to a company was like, well, I got one foot in the door. How do I get the other? Like, did someone do something never, clever? That never got to me. It was only about the set, and that's all that mattered. I didn't, you know, very rarely, and it only happened on like two occasions where people would really be incensed, you know, be incensed or be angry or freak out. Like there was a guy who auditioned for for Letterman, and he crushed, and it was at the old Gotham. And he was, but there was not one joke he could do until it was really middle of the road. That's why he crushed. Every joke was the tired premise, the same joke you've heard a thousand times. And the person did very well. Now that person expected to get the show. When I told them that they weren't right for the show, I got one of the nastiest letters I've ever gotten in my life. But I, yeah, I, I, re I regret writing it. Eddie. You shouldn't have never done that, you know. And I put a curse on your phone ever since that day. And it's just <laughs> making oh my god, <laughs> another callback by Eddie Brill. Well done, well done. And so the comedian wrote, and I wrote, I called the comedian on the phone. I said, Look, you should never do that because that's not going to help you. And instead of being mad at them, I kind of felt bad for them because I knew that they yeah. felt that they got the show. And I just try to explain that, you know, it, you know, and uh, I, 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 again, as a comedian, I understood. And then when I stopped booking Letterman, you know, the call stopped and it went from a thousand, 60 miles an hour to zero. And wow. it was kind of good because now, you know, what happened during that time and part of it's my fault. I didn't really write a lot of new material during that time because I was hearing thousands of, of comedians and sets, and I didn't want to do anyone else's material. Right. The minute that was, the the minute that was over, I got to be a comedian again. With I can I wrote more. I was I had a freedom that I didn't have before, which was, you know, but like I didn't. I got a. I was getting very few emails, and it was kind of a blessing. It was kind of fun. That was uh, when I did. Uh, I booked Stand Up New York for a few years. And as soon as I quit booking Stand Up New York, I found out who my true friends were and who were the people that just wanted spots. And you know what? I didn't I didn't mind. I totally understood it completely. Oh, you me know? too. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it was the funny thing about the like thinking back of the people who were just such big ass kissers. Yeah. And just okay. going like, ah. Okay. Yeah. But what are you going to do when you hang out with a book? You're going to be, fuck you. You know, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be nice and you're going to hopefully get the gig. You, you want that. You want that gig. That's true. Yeah. Listen, yeah. I'm having trouble. Can we, are we almost done? Cause I, I think it's great. And I would love to have Eddie back. Let's sooner than later. So Eddie, how I want to end on this with you. We could do like another hour with Eddie here. He's, oh, don't you think? We'll have them back and on. I'd yeah, like to do I'm, it when I'm I can good. understand I'm, it. I apply have plenty of time. I uh, <laughs> there's no glee. I'm not leaving my house. <laughs> what so, do you you guys think? We're good. Yes, I was. We're gonna... we're, we're great. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> this has been the worst show ever for me. 
Oh. Well, not from I know, but I'm still looking the forward to it. You know, as much as we give Richie shit, it's one of my favorite people. And I, I know it sounds so cornball, but seeing him at Dangerfields the other night, you know, and Dangerfields really has had a renaissance. And I've loved the room. And we work, and it was like Richie, the minute I saw Richie, was like, oh my God, you know, you're just from. It's one thing about comedy, you have this friendships that. Yes. We might not see them for years or whatever. And. It's just really great to see them again. And we said, Rick Adana, I was like, fucking A, let's do that. You know, because yeah. you and I did the thing last time we saw each other, really saw each other, was at the strip when you were making that film. Yeah. I worked for you a lot at that great, great comedy club in the middle of nowhere fucking Connecticut. Um, <laughs> it's you know. still around. Yeah, it's a great gig. It's a sweet-ass gig. It just sucks to get there. <laughs> you know? Um the, I mean, you know, just, cool, right? you know, the gig's free. You have to pay to get there. Yeah, right. But that's all right. <laughs> you know, I remember going there once. It was the worst storm in the world, and people still came out. To, to, <laughs> you know, something the you know nowhere is Connecticut, but it was it was really fun. <laughs> and then all there right. was a guy named Joey involved. And if you know anything about my life, the name Joey means a million things to me. All the Joeys. <laughs> I have my my original. Baseball team in fantasy baseball is are the Joeys, <laughs> and there's four that's of us. Amazing. We call each other Joey, and that's too long of a story for for this time. But uh, we'll bring well, you back on for that one. And right. Eddie, do you have anything else that you want to plug before we? Oh let yeah, you go? the 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 podcast that I, I we we've done twenty five of them. Twenty of them, twenty one have been released. It's called OG Talk. And the OG is not original gangsta. It's the Organic Grill, a great restaurant in the East Village. And, you know, I've had Colin Quinn and uh, Artie Lang. I've had, uh, you know, rock and roll guys, you know, John Joseph from the Cro-Mags. I've had the Brooklyn Borough President. I've had Cindy Shu, who's CBS anchor woman. And it's all about compassion and passion to other people and amazing food and really in-depth conversation and it's all videotaped, three camera sh shoot, and you go just go to YouTube, OG Talk, and please subscribe. We're very much into the nascent uh, episodes, but we got the next series, which we were going to film in three weeks, got to be put on hold because of you know the the virus and everything. But please, please go check that out and help us start something pretty big. There you awesome. go. Well, thank you so uh, much, Eddie, for coming on. And uh, we'll definitely talk drink. to you soon. My drink's I look coming. forward to it. That's that, strange. That it's over. Good night, next everyone. Time, next time we'll all have long ZZ Top beards, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> Eddie, take care of yourself, man. All right. Be well, fellas. Last call. Thanks for listening to Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling.